Welcome to the Dogs, your fortnightly dose of Greyhound racing interviews, insights, and a whole lot more. With your hosts, Joe Andrews and Danny Jackson. Welcome to episode four of the Gone to the Dogs podcast. As ever, I am joined by... Me, Joe Andrews. Hello, everyone. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you're listening. Thanks for joining us again. Danny, how are you? Just about recovered from the GBGB Awards. I think that was, what, 10 days ago now? It was a late night, plenty of Prosecco, and I think I had a baby Guinness shot as well. So, yeah, just about recovered, but it was a cracking night. Brilliant. Well, um, you couldn't tell on, on Monday on RPG TV that you were hungover. So congratulations. Very professional of you. I was going to say, I'm just a pro, Joe. Just a pro. You are. You are. And, and, <laughs> and tell us about some of the winners like, for people that haven't seen already. Well, we had the Newcomers Award from Post to Pillar. Of course, he is very, very exciting. Can't wait yeah. to see what his career turns into because, of course, he's already blown quite a few big dogs out of the way. But hopefully he can have a really good 2023 because then he'll most likely take another award next year to be fair uh Lenson Doolin he is close to my heart mainly because I usually get him turned over at very short odds uh, but also because I love her than greyhounds as everybody knows and he is one of the best well he's, he is the best in the country he's the reigning he's champ now is. he is indeed so absolutely love Lenson Doolin he's my boy Romeo Magico of course uh, 2022 Derby winner. He won the standard category and the British bread. So he won two categories on the night. And then we've got to talk about Kula Maniansi as well, because she won bitch of the year, which was a really, really tough category. Very tough indeed. And then she went to win Greyhound of the year as well. And all kudos to her and the team behind Kula Maniansi because she is just a joy to watch. Yeah. And congratulations to all the winners on the night. It's great to celebrate the stars of the industry. And have a drink and a, a baby Guinness and, and whatever you fancy. <laughs> and look like a disco ball in the process. Yeah, it's great fun. <laughs> uh, Joe, you've got to come next year. Right. Over the last couple of weeks, we have had some absolutely monster performances. We're going to be talking about three. Antigua Sugar, Lynx Maverick and Belmore Sally. We're going to start with the Mark Wallace charge, Antigua Sugar, because I love this dog. I think she's absolutely brilliant. And Joe, talk us through Antigua Sugar. Yeah, I mean, a brilliant performance in the final of the Peter Bussey Memorial uh, at Crayford. I mean, I think she won by nearly a full second in the end. She actually absolutely blew everyone away. Um, I feel, was she anti-post favourite as well? I, I can't remember. I think maybe she was, but someone Probably. can abuse me on Twitter if I'm, in, if I'm incorrect. But um, no, brilliant, really, really top performance. Then we had Belmore Sally on the same lunchtime card who retains her crown in the golden jacket. Yeah, I don't think many greyhounds have done that in the history. You know, it's a very prestigious competition, the Golden Jacket. Um, and I think, again, someone can have a go at me. I think it was, is there two or three greyhounds that have done that before? I think it's two, and I think she's now the third. But again, I'm no good with stats like this, so they can abuse both of us, Joe. <laughs> Indeed. And then uh, and then the pups, obviously, the Northern Puppy Derby. It was won by Tom Hellebron again. Um, he won it with Freedom Alibi last year, but this year Lynx Maverick looks a really top pop, doesn't he? Yeah, he really, really does. I think he's another exciting uh, newcomer this year for 2023. And I think, you know, like you say, the Hellebrons have got some really nice puppies coming through. I'm very excited to see how they get on this year. So I think that is everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks, Joe, unless you've got anything else. 
But yeah, just one more thing, Danny, that I wanted to discuss. I mean, for those that aren't aware, they're about to debate, I think maybe next month in the Welsh Parliament for greyhound racing to be banned in Wales, unfortunately. Mm. Now, there's only one greyhound track, which isn't licensed by the GBGB at the moment, the Valleys Racetrack, although they are applying for a license and they've applied for planning permission. But there was a petition last year that got about 33,000 signatures, I think, and therefore had to be debated. As it turned out, I think half of those signatures were actually from people in Wales. So it's very frustrating when you see press releases about it claim that there's 33,000 people against ground racing in Wales when it's mm. not really relevant if someone in Tuvalu or the Seychelles assigned it really. <laughs> um, however, having said that, there's a new petition that's just come out this afternoon as we're recording for the Welsh Government to support ground racing in Wales. So I would urge anyone listening to sign this petition, tell your friends, make sure you get the word out and let's combat the original petition because um, you know it's a very real threat that they might ban ground racing in Wales and and let's face it you know some of the arguments against it are ridiculous because if they get a GBGB license obviously the track will have to come up to very high standards they'll always have to have a vet on the track uh, everything that happens there will be recorded and registered of course so um, you know you'd think getting a GBGB license there would be a positive but they don't fancy it and these people want to ban ground racing so please 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 sign the petition if you haven't already and that's available on my twitter i'm sure it's on yours danny and, and it's mm-hmm. it's all over social media and if you can't you can i'm sure you can search for it on google and other search engines are available indeed so sign the petition yeah it's on my twitter i've retweeted it i've signed it so let's get those numbers up count that i'm on at the moment it was like 170 so we need to go some to get to that 30k please please do sign it and get all your mates to sign it get your mum to sign it everyone you know sign this petition it is our livelihood it is the sport we love let's get behind it so on with the show we've got an absolutely belting interview it's about an hour long but i can tell you it is worth it so if you've not quite got an hour yet pause it and come back when you do because we have got the legend that is steve nash on board for the gone to the dogs podcast episode four absolutely belting interview so we may as well leap in with two feet So, Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself and has your family always been involved in greyhound racing? Uh, yeah, pretty much so. Hello, Danny. Hello, Joe. Um, yeah, pretty much so. Um, my first recollections of greyhound racing go right back, would you believe, to 1962 or 63. Um, my mum and dad were very, very keen on the dogs, so they took me to Crayford, was my local track. And I should mention that that's, um, that's the original Crayford where Sainsbury's now stands. Uh, because um, it was, um, yeah, it was it was closed in 1984 and rebuilt in 19 and opened again in 1986. But anyway, yeah, I go back that far, and uh, yeah, always been very involved, very very keen on the dogs. So I can remember those very early days, uh, actually, still now. So yeah, I was very very involved with that, and then it was always a hobby of mine right the way through my teens. I've got more race cards from 1970s and stuff when I used to go with my mates, one of whom still goes to Crayford now. Uh, so yeah, we go back a long way with that, and uh, that's how I sort of my first my first introduction to it was at Crayford. That's my local track, a couple of stops away on the train, so it was very easy for me. Tell us how did it all begin with the interest in photography? 
um, funnily enough, about the same age. I mean, the, my, my story is a very simple one, really. I just had two hobbies that just went along from a very young age. I was always interested in photography when I was a kid. And uh, I didn't know that the two would collide to such an extent later on in my life, to be honest. Um, the two were just genuine, just hobbies. I was always very keen as, you know, right the way through my, you know, growing up. I was always interested in, uh, in taking photos or whatever camera I could get to hand. Uh, but not not massively, you know, not not sort of, uh, you know, no, the technical side of it. But I like I like doing that. And the greyhounds I would go to, as I said earlier, about you know all the way through my teens and stuff. Is only when I got married, I suppose, I just probably drifted away a little bit to have a family and stuff, and we moved away from Crayford and and things moved to a different stage of my life. But then it was always like going dog racing, even then, and still like taking photos. The photos were particularly took an upward trend probably in the 70s I was working in London and I borrowed a Pentax off of uh, a friend I worked with um, that took me up a level and then from then I then bought a Nikon and suddenly I was really hooked on the photography. The Greyhounds came into play in, 19, in 1984 because purely through ownership. I always liked the dogs and then uh, the people that I was working with at the time said, why don't we get a dog together? You seem to know a bit about this, Nashi. So we went to Wembley because that was fairly close to where we worked. So it was it was convenient for us geographically, all of us, or three of us who were involved. And we bought a, a pup at Hackney Sales to race at Wembley. And it was just a great way of getting introduced to the sport at a more intimate level. And of course, being the uh, the photographer in the syndicate, I got the job of taking the photos of the dog for trials and everything. I used to just, I just love it. I mean, I just, you get hooked on. Greyhound racing sucks you in like that. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a lovely opportunity to go and take photos of the dogs, of, of our own dog and report back to the others. And, and then we got another dog after that because the dog was fairly successful at Wembley. Then we got a pup after that. And, and that um, was really how it started with getting involved in the photography at the dogs, taking my own dogs racing. So when did you actually realise then that you could make a living out of taking pictures of dogs? Because as I can imagine, it probably wasn't an overnight win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was never really destined to be, it's never really intended to be. It was a hobby, as I said earlier, and it was mm. a nice little sideline. What? What happened, Danny, in, in, is that after I started taking photos of my dogs, then people came along and said, can you take photos of my dog, you know, of their dogs? So it was just a, a little sideline thing. I was a regular at Wembley anyway. And then it became a little bit more regular uh, with uh, the, the, the big important thing that happened that as far as getting to make it a living out of it and actually going full time with it, that was a little later on, obviously, because for the first six or seven years, it was just basically just a little hobby. But the, the thing that happened that was very important to me and may even have had a, an impact on when I'm still here talking to you now was the Valerie and Bob and Scurlo Champ coming on the scene. The timing of that was perfect from my own perspective because I was already involved at Wembley, as I said, and Valerie and Bob and Scurlo Champ were having their own little sort of, you know, they were having a bit of, Scurlo Champ was a wonderful freak of a dog but, but drew the crowds in. And Ballyrig and Bob, meanwhile, was just a fantastic dog to watch, um, especially when he when he went over six bends. So their particular careers drew the crowds into lots of tracks wherever they raced. And I got very involved in that. I got drawn into that because I started to write for the Greyhound magazine at that time. I used to buy everything. I mean, I used to buy all the magazines on photography and buy everything that was everything that was published on Greyhound racing 
I would just read avidly um, to try and just uh, uh, find out more, more about the photography and more about the dog. So I was very involved in it. And I followed Ballerig and Bob and I followed Scarlo Champ. And uh, that sort of got me uh, more involved on the on the work side of it because uh, people like Alan Lennox, the late Alan Lennox, who ran the Greyhound magazine at the time, he said, well, would you like to do some writing for me? So I, I became his roving reporter in the mid-80s to help him with his coverage of those two dogs. And I went to play. I was also prepared to put the time in as well. I went, I went to places like Peterborough to see Scurlo Champ. And I went, I, I traveled all over the place because he was such a fantastic dog to watch, as was Ballerig and Bob. So I got very involved in that. And that helped to propel me on the path of, well, this is, this is quite a nice little thing to do. But it always fitted around my job um, that I had in London at the time. Um, it was fascinating watching those two races and all the other stuff that was going on at the time as well. There's some great dogs in those days. And then, and then in 1990, the things changed a little bit in 1990 because like, the company that I worked for in London uh, went bust. And I had, just as a very quick aside, people don't know, people that know me know this already, but I had a hearing issue, which I still have now, obviously, but I, I had a massive hearing issue at the time. And I had the choice to make between trying to get another job or do I take the six or seven years experience I've got in Greyhound Racing and try and make a go of it. So it was quite a tricky decision personally as well. So we decided, my wife and I decided that she was part-time at the time. She went to her boss and said, can I go full-time? So I stayed at home, looked after the kids during the day, went dog racing at night. Hey-ho, you know, win-win. She went out to work full-time to try and make up for obviously the to see how I should, could fare as a photographer it wasn't just greyhounds because I had to diversify mm. I made the decision at that time to diversify and expand into other areas so I I did a lot of writing I did a lot of other dogs um, I did a lot of other sports local papers I basically did everything I could get my hands on work-wise um, around being a, a, a home to sort of like do the school run and that sort of stuff a uh, long time ago now but it was quite an important part because it meant that I could go dog racing and still have my hearing problem would have been genuinely very difficult to go and get another job because they just would have different now they would not discriminate against people but 30 odd years ago they would have said oh thanks mate but no I don't think so because I needed so many different things that uh to, to cope with the hearing loss that I had at that time the hearing aids are now much better now, so it's much better for me. But at that time, I had to make that decision, and that's what we decided to do. And then, so from 1990 onwards, I just went, just threw everything into it, built my own dark room at home, and took it from there, really. And how wow. would you say things have changed over the years, Steve, both in terms of technology and techniques? Oh, massively, obviously. I mean, the, the biggest change between then, when I started out, Right the way through up to the time I'm talking about, when I started out, it was all on film, film negative. Uh, younger listeners probably won't know what I'm talking about, but, but film was very much the order of the day then, long, long before digital was even thought of. And in those days, you had to do everything on film. And more importantly, if you wanted to make a go of a business, you had to process everything yourself. You had to process the films, you had to print actual hard copy prints out you had to learn how to uh set up your own dark room basically i i personally here converted the garage we still live in the same place now i converted the garage into an office in a dark room so you had to learn all that as well so you had to have the photography but you also had to know how to do your own films 
you couldn't send the films to Boots or something like that because it would take too long. If you're working in the press, they needed something the next day. Mm. So in those days, you would go to places like um, Wembley, as I've already said, and then you've got Haringey to follow Ballerig and Bob is a very good example. Uh, all the London tracks and some other further afield ones as well. When you got home, you had to do the films. You had to come home and process the films. Bearing in mind also, it was only that you were, you were restricted as well, 36 frames per film. You couldn't just fire away as many shots as you want and then just delete stuff you don't like, like everybody can do now. In those days, you, you were limited to how many films, how many frames on a film, and then you had to process every time you got a film complete. You knew you had to go home and process that. You had to learn how to do that, which I did. Operate my own dark room, set it all up. Spent quite a lot of money converting the garage to the dark room, as I say. And that's how we used to do things in those days. And then there was a gradual, um, to, to very, very quick timeline on this would be that the 1980s up to the 1990s were still film and processing and printing. And then the mid-90s, we could still, it was still on film, but you could then digitise it by having a film scanner. Ridiculously expensive way of doing it, but it meant you didn't have to do prints anymore because you could process the films dry the negatives, um, then scan the negatives, and then send the negatives you had to get a, a computer. In my case, I, I got into Max. You then had to learn another process then of having uh, a situation, a system where you didn't have to do darkroom printing anymore. You process the film, you scan the film, and then the selected images that you got were edited and then sent to the newspapers or wherever you were working for by wire or modem or whatever means very very slow by today's by today's terms and eventually we got to digital full digital capture so a digital cameras came along in my own personal case i think it was about 2001 when i actually changed over to digital cameras and in my case it was a nikon d1 a very original name but that's what it was called a nikon d1 came along followed by the d2 d3 d4 d5 went out d6 that's how far we've come but that was the middle middle 90s with scanning. And then the end of the, the beginning of the new century, we actually changed over to digital capture. And that made a huge difference because now you didn't have to do any films. You didn't have to process anything. You just have, you could actually get it straight off the camera. So now the fast forward to today, now we've got much better cameras. Those digital cameras have improved. The first, the original digital cameras were quite basic. Uh, and you really did, as a, as a film photographer, you really did notice the difference that digital, you were very, very much paying for the convenience of not having to do films anymore. But the quality was not up to the standard of the films. Eventually, we got to a point where the digital cameras did improve to such a degree that now it's great now. I mean, now, you you know, the quality now is fantastic. So that's sort of where we're at with it anyway. So that's, that's sort of the biggest change has been really the smelly dark rooms and chemicals and having to learn how to do all that and how long it would take you all through the night to do films. Now you can actually just, you got it there. So mm -hmm. anyone of a certain age would remember that. But um, in those days, you had to be very, very careful how many pictures you took as well because everything had to be processed in the old days. Nowadays, you've got mobile phones now. Mobile phones have completely changed the world as well. And now people can do it all on mobile phone and upload it straight away. So we had some massive differences. That's the biggest difference for me would be from film analog to the digital world of today that we all live in. And do you love it just as much? Uh, these oh yeah, days? <laughs> yeah. I don't miss. 
yeah, the dark room. I had some long nights in the dark room, Daddy. I can tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a lonely place, the dark room. Yeah, it's it's obviously miles easier now. Miles easier now. It's easier to get the pictures as well because the technology of the cameras themselves have moved on. I mean, I know one of the questions we were. I think we we're covering it here. Uh, what's the biggest change you've seen? There are other changes as well, obviously. I think I think you know, the changes for me personally were also I mentioned that the fact that the travelling now is completely different. I mean, in the old days, you would travel to places and have maybe the odd problem and be home in half the time it took you to get there. But now it's completely different now. Now it sometimes takes me longer to get home from tracks now than, than it used to because of all the roadworks and shutting roads and deep diversions and everything. And sometimes I, was, I can't believe it sometimes how long it's taken me to get home from somewhere. It's a minor, it's a minor thing compared to the, to the sea change we had with how we actually do the job. But it's a thing that I have noticed that's quite, quite different now to when I first started out. Well, there is another. There are there are there are other questions, aren't there, about some various things? Um, oh yeah, loads. Yeah, um, we're not absolutely. even started yet, Steve. <laughs> oh right, okay. <laughs> it was what? actually Danny. Danny, you did say whether I first. To be to be honest, you, the question did include about making a living out of it. Yes. Um, just go back to that briefly. Is it was the early nineties when I decided to um, commit myself to it, and then it was probably those first few years were crucial. And by taking on everything I could get my hands on, I also got some work from a book publisher about other dogs as well. I haven't only done greyhound racing. This is one of the questions that may have come up later anyway. But one of the things that I got very involved in back in those earlier days of the 90s was you couldn't survive on dog racing. I mean, you couldn't, you know, there's not enough even now. It's just a difficult, it's a very, 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 very small market. Mm. And it's not like premiership football or even horse racing with a much wider audience and a uh, much bigger scope to get your pictures published. I realised very soon that you, um, if I could diversify, that would still keep it within photography and still keep it within dogs. So for, so for many years, I actually did lots of other dogs as well, not just greyhounds. I was involved in a book publishers with doing German shorthair pointers and German shepherd dogs and golden retrievers and God knows what else. I can remember, I think it was about seven or eight breeds, Maltese, all sorts of things that where you would be sent to the breeders all over the country, the top breeders in the country, have a book commission and go and do just books. They're still in pet shops today, I believe. I still see the odd one now and again. But that was a book commission. So I would do loads and loads of pictures for this book publisher, including Greyhounds. They also did Greyhounds as well. So some of the Greyhound books you'll see was by this same publisher. But they also said to me, oh, do you want to do some more work uh, for us? And how about doing these other breeds that, that we do books on? So I was sent to all sorts of, all corners of the UK to do these people and learn quite a lot about it. Actually, it's very interesting. Learn quite a lot about how other, like the show, shows, I mean, the dog shows and things like that. Quite, learn quite a lot about how other breeds work and the breeding systems and how they, how they operate. It was quite interesting. But in the end, I got the greyhound work got busier and busier mm. and i decided to just stick with the greyhounds i decided to ditch the other dogs in the end because it was becoming too time consuming compared to what was the well, just just briefly on that you would have to have good days because it's for a book the book will not book publishers will not accept any pictures unless they're really really nice pictures on a nice day dog <laughs> racing we just keep going press photography pouring with rain keep get the shot Keep going. The racing keeps going. You keep getting the shot. Don't matter how wet you're getting, you've got to keep taking the pictures. Mm -hmm. If it's a book publisher, you would spend hours like, trying to arrange a day to go, 
and then you go there, and then the weather would change, and then the pictures wouldn't work out right. The publisher would get the hump because the pictures weren't quite what they were looking for. And in the end, I said, look, dog racing is the way to go because we keep going, whatever happens. And it suited me better. You can hear the love, to be fair, Steve. And with regards to favourite pictures that you've taken over the years, uh, Terry Rickard's been in touch on Twitter and says, from a technical point of view, what's your favourite picture? And which one may not have been, you know, a technically brilliant but helped create a, a really good story um yeah it's good it's a good question actually because terry's a pro himself so it's always nice to get, get inquiries from other from other professionals because they know where you're coming from when you try and answer that question i mean he would know the, te- you know, the technical side of it as well the best pictures technically i've got coincide with what do you say technically and favorite pictures as well because it's when everything comes together when you've got the technical side of it is so important and there is a lot of technical side to it um more than some people might imagine and when it comes together in a situation that leads to something positive for the sport as well it's no coincidence that my favorite pictures were also the pictures that suddenly propelled the sport to a to a new level as far as national publicity is concerned so in the old days Briefly, again, I don't want to go back too much on the old days because I know people do that. But the Ballerigan Bob story was fantastic because he was such a good dog. And when he was going for the UK record and then later was to break the world record. But during all that series of runs, he would go to Harringay on a Friday night and I would go there as well. And just as he closed in on the record, I managed to get a really, really nice shot of him in full stretch. And when you go back to what I was saying earlier about captions on film you didn't know what you got at the time nowadays i would know immediately i've got the shot i've got the shot and you go home with a big smile on your face in those days you just didn't know you had an instinct maybe that i'm hoping i got that i think i got that right but you didn't know until you went home processed the film then held the negatives up against the light and and think oh i think that's it i got it a different process to what we do today completely and Barry rig and bob that got in the evening standard the next day and the Evening Standard and other people picked it up and other people picked up on the story purely because of the Evening Standard using the picture got across half a page the next day. Evening Standard in those days, big big London paper, everybody bought it. I was still working in London at the time, so everybody saw it. It led to more publicity. Suddenly you've got other people, other papers asking for shots of Barry Regan Bob and George Curtis, who was his trainer, a legend himself, George, and... That led to a lot of publicity, and that was a it was a really really nice shot. I was absolutely delighted with it at Harringay Dog Track, and that was my favourite picture for many many years. And then in 2011, and some people listening will probably know what I'm going to say now because I got the triple dead heat of Romford, <laughs> and the triple dead heat the triple dead heat of Romford head on shot at the end of a 925 meter race on a sky night. So it was a high profile high profile night as well. And the three dogs went over the line. And by now we were digital now. So I knew, I looked at the camera and thought, hmm, I think that's okay. Three of them went over the line. There was this long pause, a hell of a long wait, because you could tell it was very close. Then you run down to the bookmakers, because I was up at the first bend taking this shot. I went down to the bookmakers. The bookmakers didn't know. Some people were even asking me, saying, well, do you, have you got any idea? I said, well, it looks really tight between all three of them. But lots of dead heats over the years, but never had a triple dead heat. And, and sure enough, eventually, after quite some time, Peter O'Dowd, the racing manager at the time, read out the result. It was indeed a triple. So it's a nice feeling then to be sitting on that shot. 
Well, the next day, it absolutely went uh, went across the board as far as national papers were concerned because they picked up on it. Uh, the what we call the red tops, the, uh, the all, all those papers all went for it big time, and they used the pictures from the photo finish official from the track plus my pictures. So it was that was a massive boost for the sport, and that always gives me a kick if you do your thing, getting the national coverage, but you're also the fact that it, it puts the sport in the spotlight for the right reasons. Mm. You know, sometimes the national papers, they only, you know, we all know this, you know, they, they sometimes they home in on when there's a story that's, you know, that's not such good news. And that always depresses me. So when they actually come to me and say, oh, you're the man with the pictures here, you know, we want to go big on this. It's so nice to see the pictures across the national paper, giving the sport such a, you know, such a good lift. And again, technically, going back to Terry's question, it's a good question, Terry, but it's it's technically you you just try and get everything right. And it's nice when everything comes together because um, the technical side of it is very, very important, but concentration is equally so because you, you still want to miss that moment. You know, yeah. if I'd missed that shot, I would have had everybody saying, what have you got, what have you got? <laughs> uh, change the subject. That was definitely... Uh, my favourite shot and probably remains so to this day. That was a while ago now. But and and technically, I mean, telling a story is a very, very important part of the job. That was one of the things that first got me into it was the fact that by, when you're doing still photography, you're capturing in that one moment possibly a, a real story about how that race was won. So if you get an angle at the first bend or something and you can see where if you can capture it in a still, it's it's very satisfying when you get your bit right and you know your timing is right and your exposures are right and your shutter speed is right and everything all comes together to get that technical side of it correct. And that is very satisfying if it helps to tell the story, um, which is what got me into it in the first place. I mean, I love all that sort of thing of where you're capturing an image that you don't really see on a on a video. You don't really get the same thing on a video. So those are my most satisfying shots. And there's been lots of derbies down the years. I know there was a three dogs in a photo finish at Shawfield in the Scottish derby one year. That gave me a lot of satisfaction as well. Because, again, technically, you've got a remote control set up. You've got your head-on picture set up, uh, camera set up. And when you see three dogs go over the line, it's a long way back from Shawfield. You know, if you, <laughs> if you, if you get that... It makes that journey. Like people that have a winning night, they always say, "Oh, it's a short journey home tonight." I'm the same with pictures. You know, if you get a good, if you got the shot, it makes that journey home so much more satisfying because you know that you've got you've done your job, you've done the job that you were asked to do. So that's always very satisfying. But it's nice to hear from Terry because he's a he's a very accomplished professional himself. It's nice to hear him asking questions about how I do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, do you still feel that pressure then? Because you're right, you only have a split second to get some of these shots. Do you, do you feel that as they're coming round? You know, if I, I must make this shot as they cross the line. Oh, that's what keeps you going. I mean, if you didn't have that pressure, you wouldn't do it. You've got to do that. I mean, I remember, let me quickly tell you, when I first started out, there was a guy that I knew that was um top photographer. He was commissioned to do the slalom in the Winter Olympics. And there were about 75 competitors, all right? And he had to take every single one as they came down against a snow background. So it's, no, it's not easy photography against snow as a white background. And he had to get every single shot right. And he did. He spent the whole day or whatever it was doing it. And he knew, he said, this is the other thing where you talk about concentration. He couldn't afford to miss any of them. 
because nobody knew when they came flying over that hill to do the slalom in the skiing. The next day, the editor would say to him, I want the fastest one. I don't care you've got a great shot of this fella, you've got a great shot of that fella, or you've got this or that. I want, whoever's gone quickest today, that's the picture I want for the back page. And if you haven't got it, go away. And he had to get all of them because he didn't know which one was going to be the fastest. And that's pressure. That's pressure. But that's that's what you've got to do. You, you, they're always going to want the, the money shot. They're not mm. interested in the one, are we? Well, they are interested in the one that's nice and full flight and all that sort of stuff. But when you're doing a job, you know that if you do, say, the heats of the puppy derby or something like that, you know that the standout performance of the night is the picture that the paper wants top of the list the next day. And so you've always got to keep that concentration and uh yeah you don't want to miss anything now you don't miss anything now back in it back in again back in those old far off days of Waldenstow on a dark night and you're using film and the lighting is really poor i mean people talk about go back to the previous question about technology or what's changed as well is the lighting as well the lighting at tracks is much better now and years ago the lighting was quite poor on the bends at some tracks and you had to really work hard. And and sometimes you wouldn't get anything at all. Whereas now, you want to get something all the time now because it's quite disappointing given the technology improvements and the lighting improvements of the tracks themselves um, has made the job a bit more straightforward. And I like to think that the practice I've put in might have made it a bit easier as well. But back in those days, I was still learning, of course, as well. Well, I was going to ask you that as well. Do you have spots now at every single track where you know you can get the perfect spot and using your experience to make sure you're just set up in the right areas? Try to. Yeah, I try to. I mean, I like to, you know, bring experience into play. I mean, you do learn from you, – you never stop practising. You never stop practicing. You never stop learning um, because there's always you, – you bring your experience to bear on lots of these situations. But you also know that places where – you keep trying and it doesn't come out and you're just flogging a dead horse. I mean, sometimes there are some, there are some people who think, oh, I'll try it there. And then you try it and it's rubbish. You think, I knew it was going to be rubbish because I've been doing this for years and there's just not enough light there. If, if the lighting is poor, then it makes your life quite difficult. You've got to remember that we're, we're shooting in what's called a, a available light and you, you can't introduce any light yourself. You have to work with what you're given. So it's up to the, where the light falls on the track. The quality of the light now is much better now. Obviously, the lighting has improved tremendously down the years. Um, but you have to get, we used to have grass tracks, and grass tracks, the light would come down. We also rely on reflection. If you've got sand, just very briefly on a technical point, if you've got a lot of bright lights coming down from onto the sand, the sand reflects light back up onto the dogs. In the old days of grass, the light would come down from the spotlights and just die. It would just hit the grass and it wouldn't bounce back. So when we had grass tracks, Waldenstow is a particular example of that, when we had grass tracks, the light would not bounce back up into the door. So the light was really poor because it didn't go anywhere when it hit the grass. Now it hits the sand and it actually bounces back onto the dogs, if that makes sense to people without sounding too technical. Every tiny bit of light you can squeeze out of it helps, and that's why equipment comes into play, how good the equipment is, how good the lighting is, how good you are yourself in knowing how to deal with that. So, yeah, there are, in answer to your question, Joe, yes, there are certain places where I head for, I make a beeline for, 
For instance, there's lots of tracks with very, very good light on the winning line. It's because they've got the winning line gantry lights. So mm. they would give you a good opportunity to get probably the most the most amount of light to get into the camera. We still rely on the same basics as we did years ago. It's getting light into the camera. The more light you can get through the lens of the camera into the sensor on the digital, then the more light you can get in there, the more you can do with the picture and the more and the better the exposure will be on the shot because you're talking basics here, but we have to talk about the basics of exposures and uh, how much light you can get through the lens. The big lenses that people use, they're not necessarily to get closer to the subject. They're big because they allow more light into the camera than a smaller lens. And that's just the basic of photography, but it's something that you learn and you have to stick with. And trying to find the best light at the track is something I'm always doing. Easier now, we've got some daylight coming down. The daylight will improve now as we get closer to the spring and the summer. So the job gets a little bit easier. But during the winter at night, you are dealing with whatever light there is available to you. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely, makes yeah. Makes perfect sense, yeah. From someone who is absolutely pants at taking any kind of picture, i.e. me, yeah, <laughs> makes perfect sense. And on that, what advice would you have for anyone who actually wants to start taking pictures of dogs? Well, very much to take a leaf out of my book, really. When I started with my, as I said earlier about my own dogs, I mean, I, I quickly realised I didn't really have the right equipment to get really, really good pictures of the dog. So I had to spend a bit more money on it, a bit, a bit more time on it. And I had to up my game as far as equipment is concerned. First and foremost, if you if you want to get something of the dogs, you need to get fairly close. Because if you're not close enough, you're going to have to need a very, very big lens. And the big lenses are expensive. They're expensive for a reason. The gear is expensive for a reason. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because you can't get, you know, you can't immediately go out and buy all this expensive stuff because you've still got to learn how to use it. And you have to build up very gradually. The one thing I would say is have patience. That's the first thing. And secondly, have some knowledge of it. You can't just point and shoot with this business. I mean, of taking action photography in particular, there is a lot to be learned from it, the, the principles of it and the, the, the basics of how it all works. And the important thing is, is to build up very, very gradually. Uh, you get a, a lens, get used to that lens, then find out that that lens isn't quite fast enough or quick enough or good enough. Um, and you you end up having to spend a bit more money on it. To start out, you need to um, know a little bit about it for a start because you can't just point and shoot. And then have the gear that will try and cope with the situation, get as close as you can and practice, practice, practice. You will not get great stuff straight away. It doesn't work like that. I wasn't an overnight sensation by a long way. Um, you have to build at this. I started off at Wembley getting gradually more used to Wembley, getting closer to the dogs, then upgrading my equipment as I as I earn money out of it. One thing I have done is certainly reinvest everything. Everything I everything I made on forever, going back and like buying something else or improving gear um, and, and reinvesting, putting it back into the business because you have to stay abreast of advances in the equipment and you gradually build it up um, because you'll find that the stuff that the equipment has to be of a certain level to be able to get anything that's really sort of acceptable. And getting to that stage is not overnight. You know, it takes a lot of practice 
and a lot of know-how and a lot of trial and error. Um, I can give pointers to people to say, obviously, you need a fast shutter speed. You need a thousand of a second shutter speed minimum. You have to know about all this stuff. You mm. have to know how to manually work a camera. In other words, by manual, I mean where you have total control over the camera and the lens, total control over the equipment you're using. If you just try and let the camera do the work, the camera's not going to be quick enough for dog racing because those dogs are small, they're quick, and they'll be gone before you know what's happening. So you need to sort of get some decent stuff, know a bit about it. I used to buy every magazine. I used to buy, I used to, I used to spend a fortune on magazines and stuff, go to every photographic show that was going to learn, 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 to try and get as much information as I could. Home Run Hounds is a new charity set up homing centre. We've been operational for a couple of months now and we aim to find loving homes for retired racing grounds. I've been in greyhound racing for 30 years now as a kennel hand and an owner. Six years in the homing industry through Greyhound Trust through their Dudley branch. Obviously totally in love with the breed and firmly believe that once their racing career is over they deserve a happy ever after in front of a warm fire on a nice comfy sofa and boy do they ever know their home. Um, we retire between two and four years of age. This means that two thirds of the greyhound's life is spent on a sofa so it's essential that we find the absolute best home for them. And we home with families of children, occasionally with cats and other pets and we do home checks, um, repetitive introductions where people come into kennels with their pet and usually it's a case of the greyhound chooses the family <laughs> obviously we like the family to choose the greyhound as well but our primary objective is to ensure that everyone within the family unit is happy beautiful little one-year-old girl called aeronautic who was going to go out to a home but unfortunately nature took its course and she's decided to have her season so she'll be with us a little bit longer but i'm sure she won't be long because she's white and black and pretty as a picture She's lovely for a couple of 20 minute walks a day. Yeah. I mean, she will be lovely curled up with maybe a semi-retired couple yeah, or, yeah. you know, she'd be lovely with children as well. She's a beautiful bitch. If you're looking for a greyhound as a pet, approach one of the independent homers or a greyhound trust branch locally to yourself. Or you can, of course, home direct from the trainer's yards. Their phone numbers are always in the programme. So you can contact us. The telephone number is 07488. 253537. Our website is www.homerunhounds.co.uk and we have our Facebook Home Run Hounds and our Twitter account at Home Run Hounds. Now, Steve, we've got a couple of questions regarding numbers now. Might be a bit difficult given how long you've been in the game for, but how many pictures do you think you've had published? And also, how many pictures on walls do you think there are out there that you've taken? Because there are two on my wall behind me. Well, I had a big count up before we came on here, and I've probably had <laughs> two to it now. Now, honestly, Joe, it's it's honestly i it's impossible to i mean how long it it's it's going on for 40 years now i wouldn't have a clue um it's thousands it's thousands um the only thing I, the angle i can put on that is jim kremin to be fair uh, our good friend jim kremin did ask me this question when he was doing a column i think uh 
few weeks ago, not all that long ago, actually, he was asking me about how many pictures I've actually taken as opposed to published. So a slightly different angle on your picture because I did actually have a little bit of a workout um, from chest. Sounds terribly nerdy, I know, but I've actually <laughs> got, a, got a record of, of all the meetings I've done since 1990. You know, I said about going sort of full-time in 1990 and started taking it a bit more seriously. I, I actually know how many meetings I've attended since 1990, believe it or not, and how many other jobs I've done on top of that, of course, because it's not just dog meetings. I've been to so many other things as well and kennel visits and things. We think it's over a million now as far as taking pictures. Wow. Uh, that's an educated guess. I couldn't believe it myself. The actual publications is definitely way into the thousands, without any doubt whatsoever, when you consider that I've had... I know that I've had books published... I've had pictures published in around about 60 books, some of which are the, the not just greyhounds, but just greyhound racing must be thousands. And then you, when you consider that there's pictures published every day, racing post use stuff every day, greyhound star uses stuff still... And incidentally, Greyhound Star goes back. I mean, Greyhound Star and Racing Post both go back to the, the mid-80s because the Greyhound Star came to me. They were in competition with the Greyhound magazine. Um, at one stage we had, when the Racing Post started in 1986, I'd been freelance for them ever since that very first edition in April 86. We had two daily papers, the Racing Post and the Sporting Life, and two monthlies. So there was a lot of use for the pictures a lot of people that wanted stuff and uh the greyhound style commissioned me for quite a few jobs the Graham magazine commissioned me for various things including writing as i mentioned so if you go right back to those days and they're still using pictures now on an everyday basis you've got to be talking thousands book publishing uh, magazines um uh, greyhound stub book pictures in there every year for the last god knows how long uh, Liz Mort does that now. It used to be Charlie Blanning. I remember when Sir Mark Prescott first came to me in 1987 on that. I always remember that because Mark Prescott phoned me up and said, I want a picture of the Derby winner as God made him. Which is, If you know Sir Mark Prescott, you know how he talks. You know how he, <laughs> he said, I don't want any jackets. I don't want any muzzles. I don't want any paraphernalia. I want this greyhound as God made him. And off I went to Gary Baggs' kennel, who'd won the derby with Signal Spark that year, and and came back with a shot that I was really hoping that Sir Mark Prescott liked it. And, and yeah, and we've been good friends ever since, fortunately. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, was, so I've been, it, there's so many things. I mean, the more you think about it, the more you think how many magazines and the Irish Graham Review. I love my time in Ireland. I mean, I've been in Ireland for a couple of years now, but lovely memories of going over to Ireland covering their Irish derbies and their Gold Cups, even Easter Cup. Um, great memories, great friends in Ireland. Um, went over there for a week in 1990 to do a commission and the whole family went over there. We stayed, well, they stayed. I didn't really stay much there. We stayed at a, a holiday village. My wife and the two children were quite small then. And I went off every day to do a different job around Ireland interviewing breeders at uh, the names of the day and then coming back and at the end of it I had five the Monday to the Friday I had commissions on five days and then I had to turn that into articles with words and pictures um, so that was an important one I remember at the time um, and of course the great German McKenna I went to see him as well around right about that time got to know a very young Owen McKenna uh, and and that lovely family they had there so 
yeah, I got to know a lot of people in Ireland from covering Ireland for many, many years. Uh, great friends, Imelda Grew, the photographer over there. She's been going longer than I have, to be fair. <laughs> and she is an absolute legend over there. She's been going for absolute donkey's years over there and still doing it. And, um, yeah, so made a lot of friends down the years. And picture-wise, oh, it's got to be thousands. Sorry I can't give you a more exact answer, Joe, um, but nice to see two on your It's nice, nice to see I didn't you expect an exact answer, Steve. That would have been crazy, but it must be, like you said, it five, um, you know, five five figures published, mustn't it, by the sound of it, easily? Yeah, it's 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 got to be. Um, whether I've been paid for them all is a different thing, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but but of course now you've got social media. Now you've got pictures on social media all the time. You can't keep track of it all now as people sharing stuff all the time. It's a different world we live in to when we, when I first started out. But but it's a good question. It's an interesting question, but honestly, um, I wouldn't even know where to start with. Uh, I keep an eye on the books because the books are quite important. And the, uh, there's been quite a few books that I've had my pictures published in. And at the last count, it was about 60. And some of I'm in Charlie Lister book. The Charlie Lister book was a natural complete commission where I actually did all the photos for the book. And that took about four or five visits up to Charlie. And that was a book that I was quite quite pleased with um, Nick Sabber's book that Floyd Amplit did was very good as well that had quite quite a lot of my work in it. It, it, it the list is endless and on walls well I don't know how many people yes I have done a lot of pictures for people that have gone on their walls I've got lots of pictures on my walls so it's yeah it's it's nice to know that your work does it's genuinely all joking aside it's genuinely very I'm quite proud and honoured to the fact that people have got my pictures on their walls or in magazines you know, or in albums or I've had a lot of uh, custom down the years of people that have been that have come to me for pictures framing and stuff. Rabbit, there's a very good customer. He's had lots of stuff for the KSS syndicate of of their successes. So it's nice to know that people are pleased to have my stuff on their walls. Well, you are a bit of a legend in the sport, Steve. That is, you know, goes without saying, really. And how do you I hate, feel? I was. Gonna I say, hate I the word. I hate the word legend, Danny. I hate it. <laughs> But you are, you are one of the yeah. legends of the sport. How did you feel when you received the services to Greyhound Racing Award at the GBGB Awards? Because that's when you, it's kind of when you know you've made it, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, it was a lovely, it was a lovely feeling. Have I made, I made it when I got the services award? <laughs> it made you feel old when somebody gives you a services award. <laughs> um, uh, the pride of that, the satisfaction of that was the fact that that was voted by my peers. We normally find somebody outside of our own our own group to nominate and vote for as far as services this year of course it was very um for last year it was for david permager and we gave a special award to elaine parker at the awards which you were at of course mm-hmm. and very very well deserved and the amount of effort that mr permager's put into the british breeding over the years was well deserved but that particular time it was it was a, a lovely surprise to be nominated for that and an even greater surprise and honor to to receive it from your own peers of people that you you know that you actually work alongside some of them for many many years and it was it was fantastic to be recognised in in that manner so um, yeah that was that was a good feeling and it was a, a very very proud moment after all the years in fact there were a couple of people even came there just because I was getting it which I couldn't believe I thought they were having a laugh with me Mike Rowe is a good friend of mine and a co-owner he's I've owned dogs with Mike we've had, we've had shares in dogs to do with Mike and Jerry Griffin down the years. And he's a good mate, Mike. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming just to see you. And I just <laughs> thought he was winding me up. And he did. He just came to the awards just to see me. So 
um, to, to let me get my award. So it was it was a lovely moment and always very, very pleased to get that. And it was, uh, yeah, nice to have it. But I think that um, yeah, particularly from your own peers. Yeah, yeah, that was nice. Yeah, and thoroughly deserved, Steve. There's no doubt about that. So, I mean, <laughs> thank you very much. What what has been the biggest change in in greyhound racing since you started following it back in the eighties? Would you say or changes? Biggest changes. Um, well, welfare certainly improved a lot. Not that it was bad back in you know back in the day, but it but but there's certainly a lot more time and a lot a lot more attention given to it now and. I think that's very, very good. Uh, as you know, I'm a Greyhound ambassador for the GBGB, so we, you know, we try and do our bit. Or I certainly do my bit on the, on the publicity side of things, and what I try and do for to promote the sport. But, but the welfare is is at the heart of everything we do, and I think that's important now. But certainly, some very, very uh, big improvements there. It's very much a different sport now, Joe. It's very, very much bookmaker orientated now. We all know that. When I first started working in it in the and getting involved from a professional point of view, uh, it was still very much a Monday, Friday evening, Saturday night. But I think that's changed quite a lot now where we now uh, become worldwide and we now cater for uh, a worldwide audience and the Times confirmed that. The Times of the Racing confirms that. And I'd like to see if, if I can just add an, add an angle to your question there where you say what's changed so much. I think that what I'd like to see personally is a bit more more national press coverage. You know, I said earlier about the kick it gives me, but if I get if I play a part in that, then I think it's it's wonderful that you can get outside the audience. So we're so we're so much preaching preaching to the converted in this game. You know, mm. we're all so involved in yeah. the dogs. You've got dogs yourself. I get a real kick out of when we take it to say your sister in law asks you something about a race that she saw on a television or something like that, and she doesn't really follow it, or or somebody else that doesn't follow the sport says, "Oh, I saw you on the telly. Oh, that was a good race, wasn't it?" But that doesn't happen enough. I'd like to get more national coverage. I think we should push that more. I think that there, we should make more effort within the sport to widen our coverage. I've been saying that, banging that particular drum for quite a long time. And and also, I think owners, I think, I think the ownership experience is different now. I think more could be done for owners in the sport to look after them. Lots of tracks do make a lot of effort, I know. I'm not saying they don't, but, but it's still an area that they supplied a product, and I think that ownership experience should be better than it currently is. Uh, you'd probably be more qualified to talk about that than I would, being a no, more of an owner than I am these days. I've got a couple of shares. I've got shares in Bubbly Bluebell uh, at the moment, but I'm not heavily involved in ownership. But I think it's I think it's important that owners are more looked after, and I'd like to see the sport going forward, making sure that that is is addressed. Um, how we do it, I'm not sure, but I just think it's a bit too much. It's got a bit too much in one direction. Like early early starts and things, for instance. Also public as well, general public, not just owners, general public. I still think all these early starts, you know, 609, if we can, if possible, just get back into that. I love the fact that you could go to Wallenstow at 7.30 on a Saturday night and leave at 10 or 10.30. It made more of a, it, it seemed to be more time to an evening out than it is now. And those are the people that do go because it's so easy to just sit and watch it on television now, of course. But I think for the people that do go, I think it should be more of an occasion, a slightly later start, if possible. But whether that, again, you're at the behest of the bookmakers so much now, and I do understand that, but I think that owners don't get the deal that they should get. That's just my opinion on it. Does that help you at all, your, you know, your question? <laughs> 
Yeah, that answers it perfectly, Stu. Well, I know there was a question about what I'd like to see different. And yeah, I think we have to, you know, we get a lot of things right and welfare is a lot better now. But I'd, I'd like to see, I mean, Romford, I know, do a lot for their owners. I know lots of other tracks do, but, but I just think that it should be a better owner's experience um, for what they put into the sports supply and the actual raw product. Now, you said, of course, that you have owned Greyhounds in the past. You've got a little share now. Have you got any at home, any retireds, or have you had any in the past? Going back a long time, we had a Wembley Grader at home for a little while. It's always been difficult here because we had a Jack Russell here um, oh. for many years, uh, and we're very much um, a cat family, to be honest. Now, I'm not saying I don't get on with cats, um, <laughs> but we've always, ever since we've been together, we've always had the cats thing, so... Uh, we did have retired at home for a little while and it was fine. But mm-hmm. um, to be honest, I'd like to have one, but it's just too difficult with the dynamic in the house at the moment with the cats. We're not here a lot of the time either. I mean, I'm working, my wife works full time. So we're not here a lot of the time anyway. So I'm not sure if it would really, you know, if it would be really suit us with the, the cats and the, the Jack Russell's dead now. But we didn't even replace him because of the cats. So we're a bit, we're a bit cat orientated here and... Uh, not mad cat lady, but just just cat lady. <laughs> just a cat lady. An ironic love of cats yeah. when you work in the greyhound <laughs> industry. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, if, if, <laughs> and I'll say, if you knew our cat, I don't think I don't think he'd react well to a dog in the house. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's the strangest cat we've ever known. But anyway, that's another story. We've got a couple of a couple more questions now from people that have uh, sent messages on Twitter or directly to, to Danny and myself. Firstly, Sean Reynolds, who I know does a lot of uh, photography and marketing at Oxford. Uh, you've answered part of his question, but he also asked, how difficult would you say snapping greyhound racing is compared to other sports? Yeah, it's a good question from Sean, actually. Um, um, I haven't mentioned that at all. To other sports, well, it, it's difficult for me to answer in an expert manner on that, because I'm not, I haven't, I've done a bit of football. I've done a bit of other stuff, but the one thing I would say, just turn that question around the other way. I can answer on behalf of other people that have come from other sports to do dog racing. So my experience of, for instance, when William Hill sponsored the Derby, they would always send their own photographer, usually use an agency like PA sport or something like that. And they would send an agency photographer and it was, he was used to doing other sports and then he would come to the dog racing at Wimbledon as it was, as the Derby was then. And I got to know three of them. They were lovely fellows. I got to know three of them quite well, but they would always find it quite challenging to do the dogs and they wouldn't be in a rush to come back. They would do it. Uh, I'm not naming any names here, but they would do it. <laughs> and you could, you could just tell that they were really glad to get that job out of the way. Because they said, God, these they're so small, they're so quick, and it's dark. And and I've got to do manual. I've got to do manual stuff. And I haven't done manual stuff for ages. And I've so they have found it, I can only speak on behalf of more than one person finding it quite tricky to do greyhound racing. Because especially if you get, say, for as an example, a black dog against a row um on a on a on a dark corner or not a dark corner but not particularly great lighting that's completely different to say horse racing in the daylight sunlight or football for instance uh, so you know where you've got more predictability in in where the ball's going to go and that sort of stuff it's easy to follow you can use automatic focus the problem with automatic focus in greyhound racing is even the most modern cameras still struggle just a little bit in an ever-changing environment 
because of the light and the size of the animal that's involved. So I think it would be challenging. How difficult would it be snapping greyhound compared to other sports? Um, if you've got the right stuff, then if you know what you're doing and you've got the good gear, then they could they can cope with it. But it is quite a specialised area. I think I have to be careful what I say here because it sounds, if I say it's specialised, oh, well, you would say that. You know, it's just very easy for me to sound a bit aloof and say, oh, well, my, my job's far more difficult than yours. <laughs> but that can only go on the experience of what I've heard from other people where they've come to do dog racing and they're the ones that have been experienced in doing your football and your cricket. I mean, I've done cricket, for instance, and with a big lens on a tripod on the side of the on the side of the ground, standing on the standing on the boundary, they're sitting on the boundary or whatever you want to do. It's quite easy because you know where the ball's going to bowl, you know where the batsman's going to do, you know, it, it, it's not that difficult. But in Greyhound, what I love about Greyhound racing is it's still as unpredictable as it was when the day I started. You know, it's you just don't know. I mean, you're like, Danny, you do commentaries, right? Now, yeah. you know, is this next commentary going to be a tricky one or is it going to be an easy one? And some are more difficult than others. And you don't know when those boxes open what you're going to find in front of you. And you've got a dog that falls over or a dog that come, doesn't come away very well or or you know, a, 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 an ever-changing situation um, within the race. It's it's that excitement of it which still provides a great attraction to me personally. And But that's a good question, Sean. And I have to say it's great at Oxford. I mean, they've, they've got some great social media stuff going on at Oxford now. The, the other thing I would say, actually, in answer to um, Sean's question also, is that it helps if you know your dogs. A lot of people don't realise this. You're not just... If, for instance, say you're taking pictures of a race and you know what's likely to lead, you know what's likely to come from behind, you know what's going to be a wide runner, you know what might be a railer, where you're dealing with extremely narrow depth... Without, pushing to go too technical, depth of field, in other words, that's depth of focus, how much focusing area you have. Sometimes you don't have an awful lot of focusing area. So if you know that a dog's going to be right up against a rouse, it's handy because you can you know where to focus to get that dog. But what you have to be careful is when you get a dog coming up on the wide outside late in the race, you have to it's it's helpful if you know how the race is likely to be run and what and the dogs that are running, rather than just take whatever you think is going to be in front. Uh, and also we've got we can we can shoot to very high sensitivities now on cameras as well so it's difficult but not impossible it's difficult but but if you're experienced in doing other sports i think you could pick up greyhound racing pretty quickly what you don't pick up quickly is the knowledge of the dogs and what's oh i didn't know that was going to come up on the outside like that hope's a very good example if you're shooting on the ladder on the line or you're top of a step ladder on a winning line and you've suddenly got a dog coming up on the wide outside that's going to come right across in front of you and completely like throw you into a confusion because you thought the dog on the inside was going to win the race. And that's something that we've had ever since day one. You don't know you get a dog on the inside, dog on the outside, and you can't get them both in focus. And that's the difficult thing. Uh, if you know the dogs, where the dogs are likely to run, that is a big help. Mm -hmm. So it's not just photography, it's knowledge of the dogs as well. So Jade's been in touch on Twitter and uh, she did ask, you know, what advice and tips can you give for the best action shots? I think we've we've answered that um, uh, earlier on in the interview. But what type of lens would you recommend to kind of start out with? Oh, Jade, Jade takes some very nice pictures, actually. She's she's um, I do know Jade. She's a very, very keen photographer. So I'm not that too surprised to hear her asking a question like that. 
lenses are expensive okay the one thing i would do if i was starting out uh, or going into an area where i wanted to take something like this i would try and find a good quality zoom lens which covers more than one focal length it sounds more technical than it is but if you can afford it jade i would go for 80 to 200 because you're covering most of the area that you're going to have to take when you do a dog racing action picture. The trouble with that question is how much it will cost. That's always going to be the big stumbling block. I've been asked this question lots of times. What gear should I have? What gear do you have? Well, don't look at the gear I've got because you, you've got to sort of find your way with it. And I started off with, well, there's a difference here, technically, again, difference between prime lenses and zoom lenses. Prime lenses are faster than zoom lenses. They are quicker and lighter because there's not so much glass involved. To, be, to, to produce a zoom lens, which can alternate between different focal lengths, needs more glass elements within the lens, which adds to the weight and takes away some of the light gathering capabilities of that lens. That's technical bit out of the way, but Jay will possibly understand that. I'd look for a, a, a zoom lens and get what you pay for. If you get a really good quality zoom lens, that's the lens is very, very important to what you do, sometimes more important than the camera itself. And, uh, and I, know, I know, Joe, she, she speaks to me about if If she were to speak to me about it, I'd be only too pleased to give her a bit more detail on that. But the lenses, she's right in saying just the, the question is correct. What lens? Because it's the lens is very, very important. We call it the glass. What glass you put on the front of the camera? People often go on about the cameras. Oh, you've got a good camera. You've got a good camera. If you've got a rubbish bit of glass on the front of it, they're single lens reflex cameras or digital single lens reflex cameras now. So the lens is detachable. Okay. So for those people to see me working, it's not a mobile phone. It's not a compact camera. It's a camera where you put different lenses on the front. So you take the lens off and you put a different lens on. Now, obviously, I've been in the game a long time. I've got different lenses. I've got different lenses to suit different situations. If you're starting out and you want a good all-rounder, a zoom lens will cover different focal lengths. That's what I'd recommend to get started. Or possibly uh, an 85mm lens prime would be the second choice. That helps. So very difficult not to lapse into technical stuff, which is going to bore everybody to death but but it's there's a lot to it there's a lot to it you have to learn all this stuff yeah <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm, i don't want to sound blase but it's a lot of stuff you've got to learn and i learned all this stuff um yeah. years ago and it, it doesn't you know you don't just pick up a camera and go yeah i fancy a bit of this it's there's a lot to it and yeah. you only find that out by doing it well i think as well people know these days you can't i try and pick up a phone and take a picture and i take 20 pictures of my dog and think I don't think any of them actually are useful for anybody at all ever. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely harder than a lot of people give it credit for. So yeah, the one the, the one thing I would just add on that, Danny, is that when you talk about mobiles now, the mobile phones are fantastic. I take good pictures. I mean, I I, I use a I use the mobile phone at Crayford last Saturday morning as they were going putting putting the boxes, and I got a nice picture of Belmore Sally about to go in the boxes because I was standing next to her, and I got a nice picture. Um, but as soon as it moves, if you want to stop it, you need a proper camera. And that's still the case. As good as mobile phones are, they are fantastic mobile phones now. Um, the quality of them is great. But if you want to catch something that's moving, 
you need a proper camera and you need someone that knows what they're doing. That's the way the world still is at the moment. If it moves, you won't, you know, you're not really going to get much for the mobile. But mobiles are great for doing scenic and videos and everything else. They're great. And of course, the thing about mobiles, you can download it straight away. Yeah. You know, you can edit them, you can you can blur the background, you get some fantastic pictures. So you know, um, you know, people now take pictures of presentations of big races. I can't compete with that anymore because I'm I'm still you know, I'm still walking away from the presentation area and the podium shot is already on the social media. But I can still, it's, it's, it makes more, it gives more emphasis to the action that I do now is that the action is still very, very important because people can't get that on a mobile. A good question from, going back to a good question from Sean Reynolds and a very, very good question from Jade as well, because I know she takes a nice picture of birds as well. I know Jade, she takes bird watching pictures and that's how I started out. Oh, yes. There you go. Yes. There you go. Very my brother, my, 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 my I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a bit of an ornithologist on the quiet. Mm. Yeah, that's how I started out was taking bird pictures many, many years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. Well, that sort of possibly leads me on to the next question because Terry Rickard has got a few more questions, and one of them is: Have you got any further uh, future photography ambitions or projects lined up? Oh, that's from Terry, is it? Um, oh, honest answers to that. Not really. Um, nothing major. Nothing that's interesting enough to talk about now. Um, <laughs> carrying on doing what I'm doing. No, seriously, uh, seriously, carrying on doing what I'm doing. The derby's coming up. Uh, lots of things coming up. Just keeping abreast of the Greyhound situation as best I can and covering the, the meetings there. And as far as anything particularly interesting or projects, no, I've got no books in the pipeline at the moment. No commissions of any great interest. It's just doing what I'm doing. Sorry for that boring answer, Sari. No, but, no. Um, we, we like you doing what you do every day. It's great. Um, <laughs> There's no breaking news on that, to be honest. <laughs> no exclusive for no, going to the dog. Oh. Oh. Yes, no. Oh. I wish, I wish, yeah, yeah, it would have been nice. It would have been nice, wouldn't it? But um, no, not really. Uh, no, uh, that's um, anything else with Mr. Rickard? Yeah, he's, uh, he's yeah, very I think keen, I'll... isn't he? You're very yeah. keen, but I think we'll I think we'll end on this one, Steve. Um, who were some of the most memorable characters you photographed over the years, whether that be dogs, trainers, or owners? You've obviously mentioned a few, but any more that stand out? Um, well, it's trainers and owners, isn't it? I mean, it's um, some of the Derby winners that make me laugh, and I've got so many stories I could tell you that we haven't got time for here. But obviously, I've got lots of very very good stories. Part about two. I was going to say, stand by for Steve Nash part two. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 uh, and not all of them repeatable either, but it's, uh, <laughs> but stand out. No, it's um, not really. I mean, I know Nick Savile was, was a fantastic character to take pictures of. Nick Savile was a fascinating to, and, and, Nick, and Charlie Lister to be fair, but, but particularly seeing Nick Savile down the years um, and how he goes about his operation and, and a lot of the stories, he tells some great stories as well. But taking pictures of him was always a great thrill uh, when he had Westmead Hawk, of course. So we haven't really mentioned at all, but Westmead Hawk, as I mentioned, with his two derby wins, that was a fantastic period to be involved in the sport as well. And so skilled that Nick was um, in, in doing his job. He was always very, very good. Um, Stan Kennett's the funniest one from a trainer point of view because Stan, Stan was the one who introduced me to... to he was the one that we had to go and see. When we first got involved in dog racing ownership, he was the one at Hackney that we were recommended to go and see. 
to put us on the right lines. And I still laugh with, with Stan about that now because um, he did the same thing with Steve Fluing. Me and Steve Fluing go back to days of having a, of using Stan as uh, a help to get our very, very first dog. So, so I was around with Steve when he started his uh, champagne club. So I've been involved with Steve and the champagne club ever since he uh, probably, probably Prince won the Cesare Richard Catford in, oh God knows, 96 or something like that. So um, yeah, so we're all we're all good friends, but we do have a good laugh with Stan is one of the best people you could you could talk to as far as stories and pictures of him. And he is an absolute when you talk about legend, I mean he is he is an absolute legend. And a good friend of the late Morris Newman as well, of course. So um uh, it was a, a great loss to the sport last year, Morris, after all he did for uh the Greg Ormond Street and for Greyhound Racing itself. Um mm. so Stan was a good mate of, of Morris's. And uh, so we always get on very well with him. Um, stories, I've got to just tell you one thing. When we go back to Stan Kennett in the Hackney days, always used to make me laugh that Stan came and saw me once. And, uh, at Hackney, the action photographers used to have our big lenses poked through them. They used to have wire at the first bend, like chicken wire, that used to overhang the first bend. And what you had to take, one of the things that Terry Rickard wanted to say, wanted to ask, was about, do you use anything outside of what people would think of as a prop in greyhound racing. And for instance, you mentioned about the ladder, that I'm well known for having a ladder when I go to certain tracks. You can't actually take pictures without a ladder at certain tracks or a squeaky a squeaky toy to make the dogs put their ears up, uh, which is another thing that's a prop that I've used for many years. But the funniest <laughs> thing was a pair of wire cutters because at Hackney, they had this wire, this chicken wire that used to overhang the first bend. You couldn't actually get over the top of the wire. You had to poke your lens through it. And there's a there's a lovely picture so I've got somewhere. And if you look at the first bend, the wire, there's about four holes in the wire because there were had four photographers and we all had our own hole in the wire at Hackney's first bend. And if you look closely, you can see actually where we've all cut our own hole out to poke your lens through to get a head-on shot at Hackney. And that was always makes me laugh um, when whenever you think about the old days and the things we used to get up to to actually um, to actually cut through the wire to make a hole just to fit your big telephoto lens through so you get the head-on shot. In fact, there's one on my wall, actually, in the office here um, of a head-on picture at Hackney, um, quite possibly with the lens poking through one of those holes. And then Hackney's, Hackney, unfortunately, like so many tracks that I've been to down the years, unfortunately closed. But but it was some great memories in there, and Stan Kenny is amongst those memories. He would be my uh, one of the trainers that I always think of Um as being there at the start and he's still there now. He's a great, great fella and a, and a great laugh. Well, Steve. What else we got? Is that it? That is it. Yeah. I was just going to say what I could sit and speak to you for hours. So I think we're going to have to have a Steve Nash part two at some yeah, point. I think um, so. Certainly, <laughs> certainly, because I've got many questions that have come up in this interview um, that I want to know the answer to as well. Um, but for now, I think it is going to be a case of stay tuned because we will have Steve Nash part two. But thank you so much, Steve, for all your time this evening because you're just fascinating to listen to. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And I hope it's been of reasonable interest to everyone that's listened. And thank you to all your listeners. Fascinating stuff, Steve. Thanks very much, mate. OK, all the best. Thanks very much for having me on. OK, all the best. Cheers.
betting side of things for the weekend to come here on the Guns to the Dogs podcast. And because he tipped such a good winner a couple of weeks ago or a couple of podcasts ago, we had to get Ryan Keneally back on the show. So, Ryan, how are you doing? I am very well, thank you, Danny. Uh, yeah, still, still uh, celebrating that 16 to 1, I think, on Claire Keith Remy, who won the 5 on 5 competition at Hove. 16 to 1, really nice prize. They uh, don't come around often at that prize, but when they do, you want to make sure you enjoy it. And fortunately, I was on, and I hope the people at home uh, listening are on as well. And we've got the Winter Derby semi-finals, of course, uh, coming up on Saturday night at Monmore. The first of them sees Hopes Paddington in one, Hawkfield Ozark in two, Droopy's Google in three, Gunboat Wichita in four, Two Lengths Too Good in five, and six is Beatty's Diva. How did you see the first one going? It's a race to the first bend. Um, can we just say now, like obviously with the Winter Derby, it's had three draws. And obviously, I won't go into the detail, like too much detail of it, but it's, it wasn't a good situation at all. But we finally got a draw now that we could, that that we're pretty sure is going to go ahead with. Um, and the first heat's a really, really pacey, trappy heat. Uh, I'm going to go with Hoax Paddington and one just inside uh, Hawkfield Ozark, who has been running really well over the 480 at Monmore. Obviously, he started at Romford over the 400 metres and has taken to Monmore really well. But I just did the class wall tower, Hoax Paddington, an inside draw. Obviously, he, ran, he beat Call of Any Shadow, um, who will come to uh, shortly on. But I just think that it's probably not his best trap, Hoax Paddington, in trap one. I think he'll move slightly up, out. But I just think that as long as he comes away and he holds his own, he holds his pitch for the first bend, he'll go on and win quite comfortably. Then it's just a case of then what is going to qualify in second. And we haven't really seen Hawkfield Ozark come from behind yet or do much from behind. So on the basis that I don't think Ozark can lead Hoax Paddington up, then it is going to be really, really interesting then on who's going to come second. And I've just sided with Droopy's Google in trap three, um, who I thought ran an absolute monster race to, to come up second behind Betty's bullet in the first in the first round. Probably not the best drawn, but I've just got a feeling that Droopy's Google can kind of look after itself on the first two bends because I do think that'll be a length or two behind the likes of Paddington, Ozark, trap four, Gunboat, Wichita. So I've, I've just got a feeling that Droopy's Google can turn the pitch and then as long as Paddington leaves, I think it's then it's a race between Google and Ozark. And I'll go with Google to pick up Ozark uh, off the fourth bend. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Hope's Paddington. It wouldn't be a strong fancy in terms of the price. I think it'll be about five to four, six to four. But I think he's more than good enough. I think he's probably the best dog in the UK at the moment in terms of consistency. So, yeah, I'm going to go Hope's Paddington uh, to beat Droopy's Google. But it's a really, really strong race. And like I said, I wouldn't even rule out five and six who stay really well on the outside. I love Droopy's Google. I think he was amazing uh, penultimate start when he did a 28.08. He didn't break as well last weekend, but hopefully he doesn't find himself too far behind uh, on Saturday. Joe, how did you see the first semi final? Yeah, I agree with Ryan on the whole. I mean, you've obviously got Hopes Paddington 28.32 versus Hawkfield Ozark 28.31. Uh, in, the, in the first round so you know a hundredth of a second separates them they're in reverse traps this time obviously you know Hopes Paddington one Hawkfield Ozark two and, and they were both the other way around in, in their heat so I, I just there's not much between them but I just think that might make the difference I think if Hopes Paddington can hold Hawkfield Ozark to the bend which he should do I mean Hawkfield Ozark has done a 427 split which is what Hopes Paddington did last time but I think he'll, he'll do well to beat Hopes Paddington to the bend and then he'll also do well to, to win if he doesn't Hawkfield Ozark Ozark. So, uh, and I also think Droopy's Google has got a good chance of, of qualifying and getting that second spot as well. As you just said, Danny, that 28.08 that he did the time before last was very, very impressive. And, and Nathan Hunt's got some terrific puppies in his kennel at the moment. And I just think, you know, strong, strong runner could pick up the pieces for second and qualify. 
Now on to semi-final number two, Smokey Franks in one. Two is Burnchurch Mick, who is the reigning champion, of course. Three is Coolavani Shadow. Four, Longacres Queen. Five is Vacant. And six sees Winterfield Duke in the stripes. So Burnchurch Mick was ever, ever so impressive in the first round. Absolutely love this dog. I think he really stamps his authority all over it. But will he do the same again on Saturday, Ryan? So he's a fantastic dog, Burnchurch Mick. He loves Mon more. You'd just be proud to have him as a dog. Really. I think he's turning four, four years old this year and he just keeps on turning out early pace and really top times. The race, though, solely depends on what Trap 3 called Avani Shadow, who probably, as good a dog to own Burnchurch Mick is, I imagine the owners' connections of Trap 3 called Avani Shadow are banging their head against a brick wall because the dog is clearly talented, probably one of the fastest dogs in the world, if I'm being honest, his pace from, say, 20 metres out, out of the traps to the third bend is frightening. But the dog just cannot trap to save its life, to be honest here. Um, you've seen in the first round, I mean, Hope's Paddington's come out probably two or three lengths ahead of the traps. And Cordovani Shadow ran into it at the first bend. He's shown that much pace. But the one thing I was impressed with um, Cordovani Shadow is that even though he hasn't led, he didn't lead in the first round. He only got beat a length from three quarters by Hope's Paddington, uh, having not led. So I think that the dog is actually getting better and better. And... If they trap level, Cordovani Shadow wins this race three or four lengths. Can he afford to miss it like he did against a Burnchurch Mick? Probably not again. Burnchurch Mick, like I said, he's been running really, really well. And his, his sectional times are flying. I'm just going to go with Shadow, though. I've just got to put faith in the dog that at some point, Patrick will get this dog to trap out. And if he does trap out level, he will be breaking. As long as the track not too slow, this dog will be going under the 28-second barrier. So I'm going to go for Cordovani Shadow to win. And then it will be a race then for what comes second. Smoky Frank, I don't think we'll have the early. Ran really well for um, Vicky Lee and Lappage um, in the first round. Don't think it's got the early pace, though, to go with Burnchurch Mick or Shadow. And I'm just going to go Burnchurch Mick just to hold off the really, really strong finishing six in Winterfield Duke. Um, he'll think it's going to have a really, really nice draw on the outside. But I think the class will show in this race. And I'm just going to go with Cordovani Shadow to beat Burnchurch Mick. But I wouldn't, I cannot physically bet Shadow. Unless I get a steady price, I will not be putting money on Shadow. So it's just a watch. And hopefully... Hopefully, the two best dogs qualify from the race. Fingers crossed, then. Coolavani Shadow does get out of the boxes, but that's what we're putting our faith in, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult because we've not seen the prices for the heats, have we? And But Coolavani Shadow is just one of them dogs that's rarely a betting proposition because he goes off at odds on, you know, he's anti post favourite for competitions at, at very short odds. And if he doesn't get out, he can meet trouble. You know, he might be the quickest dog on the planet or, or whatever. But if he can't get out the traps and he keeps meeting trouble, you know, he doesn't always win. If he gets out and he's gone, there's not nothing that can really catch him and he is breathtaking to watch but for me Burnchurch Mick is you know I'm, I'm guessing here I, I assume Call of Annie Shadow is going to be odds on and Burnchurch Mick isn't and and at the prices I'd rather be on Burnchurch Mick the defending champion 28-29 last time um, and he can do a better split as well than, than he showed last time I think he did a 4-34 and he can do better than that so I think if he can hold Call of Annie Shadow you know from from the second bend or if he's in front I think he can win and he's he's likely to be a big prize. I, I'd be shocked if anything else qualifies other than Burnchurch, Mick or Call of Annie Shadow with no disrespect to the other runners. And you never know anything can happen in a dog race, but it looks between them to me. And then on to the third semi-final of the Labrooks Winter Derby. Trap one is across the field. Two, Betsy's Bullet. Three, he's one of our own. Four, Hit the Lids Milo. Five, Carol's Legacy. And six, Aero Squeak. I was on Racing Post TV on Saturday in the first round and both myself and Dave Clark were like, he's one of our own. What 
an aeroplane, like unbelievable debut. And it's only going to get better from here on in. So I think the Green Kennel have got a very, very nice puppy on their hands, Ryan. Yeah, I agree. And in fairness, the Green Kennel are a kennel you want to be looking out for because they've purchased and acquired some right good dogs, right good pups this year. So they're definitely a kennel on the move. And yeah, it was a really impressive performance from three. Um, he's one of our own. I'm just going to give a quick shout out to Aero Squeak, who was my only anti-post bet, actually, at 100 to 1 at the start of the competition. I just think that the dog, it's the fastest graded dog round. Mon Moore put it over two, four, six bends. He absolutely loved the track. Can't really replicate the form of the tracks, but around Monmore, he loves it. And he put a really good performance in the first round against Hallfield Ozark. Um, so fingers crossed that he can qualify for me. Probably the heat that everyone wants to be in. Um, because you've missed probably most of the big guns in terms of your Paddington's and your Shadows and Burn Church Mick. Very, very tough. I'm going to give a chance, an outside chance, to Carol's Legacy in Trap 5. I think if you look at its old form last year, I think it reached the final of the uh, Yarmouth Derby, um, finishing behind Hope's Paddington. Actually beat Hope Paddington and Cordovani Shadow in the heats and semis of that competition. Then it's just had a really, really long break. But if you look at the race last week, it completely fluffed its lines against he's one of our own and then showing all sorts of speed to qualify. I mean, it really, really took off down the back straight. So I'm just going to take a chance that Carol's Legacy can come out a bit better. And I think it's got every chance to lead four. There's every chance that one across the field, two Betsy's bullet and three, he's one of our own, can come together. They're very similar. And across the field, even though you'd say it's a strong grader, before this, it was sprinting and it's got sprinters, definitely got sprinters pace. So I think that one can be a bit of a, a bit of a stopper for two and three. And I'm just going to take a chance that five cows legacy can just, I think, will lead the outside. And if it does, then it will not be for catching round here. And I'll be expecting Carol's legacy to come on for that run massively last week. So, yeah, I'm going to go against the likely favourites. I'm going to go with Carol's legacy. And I'm hoping that Aero Squeak can um, just about qualify on the outside. But... Like if he's one of our own, was the trap, then, you know, you'd expect Belinda Green to bring that dog on an awful lot. So it's exciting dog to follow. But yeah, I'm going to go with an outside chance of Carol's legacy, who would also be my current anti-post bet if I was to have a bet now. I think he's still getting 66 to 1. So I think that's a massive prize. He's got every chance to qualify. And then I think it's first three in the final then. So yeah, Carol's legacy for me at a big price. Carol's legacy at a big price with an eye on Aero Squeak to qualify as well. Joe? Yeah, good luck with Aero Squeak, Ryan. That's a top shout. I do actually think he got a great chance in, in this heat from out wide. He's one of our own, was stunning last time. I think did he quickest time of the round was it 28 25? Mm-hmm. Um, with a 440 split, you know, he's not even two till next month. He's also done a 28 36 in a trial as well, so it's pretty consistent despite only running a few times. But I think Aero Squeak. Um, done 28-29 back in December in, in an A1, obviously, you know, an easier heat than this. But splits are pretty good, 4.39 last time, but can do better than that low 4.30s. I think if he can get out out wide and clear a few of these, he's got a good chance. And I'm I'm guessing that Aero Squeak's going to be a decent price here, you know, in this heat. So I'd, I'd definitely take a chance with him. So Joe taking a chance with Aero Squeak as well. The sole wide in the field should hopefully avoid the trouble now that is the wrap-up of all three semi-finals of the Labrooks winter derby I know we were going to touch on this Joe that you weren't necessarily particularly happy with the way things <laughs> turned out for uh, annual Sydney yeah I mean look we're keeping this positive and that but that doesn't mean I can't have a moan up every now and again obviously look annual Sydney he loves Monmore um the, the winter derby has been a target for him for some time he, he had a run on the 4th of February and he was well clear he'd slipped the field unfortunately there was an incident on the the sort of first bend and he was on the fourth bend they stopped the hair which was absolutely the, the right thing to do 
However, he was drawn out for the winter derby um, before the first round. He got trapped for him in one of the heats. And then he subsequently got pulled out and sort of disqualified from the competition because for people that don't know, a dog has to have run or trialed within 28 days to, to have a run. Otherwise, they have to retrial, basically. So what the GBGB said was that that run on the, the 4th of February um, does not count towards his runs. And therefore, he hasn't run within 28 days because he hadn't run for a few weeks before that because um, we wanted to keep him fresh. Now, well, basically, the rule says there's no discretion. So that is my argument with them. There should be discretion because he's ran in a race. The traps have opened through no fault of anyone's. They've had to stop the race due to welfare, which which is correct. But that run should count. And I asked the GBGB, I said, well, if that run doesn't count, can he then run within four days because of the four day rule? And they said no because of welfare. So that's a contradiction in itself. If that run doesn't count, but then he can't run within four days because he has run. Well, has it or hasn't he ran? I don't I don't really understand. And their argument then was, well, one rule is for welfare, i.e. the four-day rule. And the 28-day rule is for integrity of the sport. So we know that dogs are fit and well. Well, how is that against integrity? You know, a, a run that's been stopped on welfare grounds at the, the fourth bend. You know, no one's trying to hide anything or, you know, nothing untoward's taken place. It just race has been stopped and void. So my argument is that that should have counted. You know, me and the lads are, are obviously gutted because he's he's not running this competition. And I, I genuinely think he would have done well in it. Mm. Um, and, and here we are. And, um, you know, there's no there's no argument with the GBGB, unfortunately. But um, I just think there should be discretion in these matters and, and a bit of common sense applied from time to time it's quite a rare situation but that's why there, there should be some discretion and uh rant over <laughs> rant over where's his next target then joe well he, he had a trial um today we're recording on, on wednesday had a trial at oxford and did a um, 27 37 4 11 split it was a, a 50 odd dogs trial in today and he did second best time behind sign at otis so look he's in rude form we knew he was um i'm not sure what his target will be obviously it's up to kevin not sure if there's any suitable competitions coming up, but we're all still shedding a tear over the winter derby and he should be running Saturday because I think he would have definitely qualified from his heat. But well, the thing is as well is that the other owners, like, um, you know, three of them, there's five of us and three of them, this is the only dog that they've ever owned or, or have mm. owned. You know what I mean? And the guys are buzzing for these competitions and that they, they absolutely love it. Well, me and Andrew do as well, but we've got, <laughs> you know, we've obviously got a few other dogs now. So for them, it's just, uh, you know, it leaves a sour taste in, in their mouth and they don't, you know, they don't understand it i mean the gbgb sent the rule a copy of the rule um and, and it says it, you know it says no discretion and then people were saying well they said you know why didn't you have a trial afterwards beforehand well you know we didn't want to any and that's not the point anyway yeah maybe we could have but at the end of the day my argument is that this race should have been used you know as, mm. as a run and and we shouldn't have been disqualified from the competition yep you'll find uh, no dissenters here joe uh, now we'll move on to the dual distance stayers sponsored by labrets.com. We've got three heats of it on Saturday at Monmore. In the first heat, we've got one crystal chick, two runaround pebs, three hell of a hoo-ha, four Olga, five Westwell Dora and trap six Candyman. Candyman is one of my favorite dogs considering he's almost four. He's not raced that many times. So I still think there's quite a few decent runs in him and I'm hoping he gets through on Saturday night, Ryan. First, I love these competitions. I love the 6.30 and then the final 6.84. I think the 6.84 is a criminally underused distance. 
Um, them longer six bend uh, races need to be used all over the country, especially Monmouth, because it is actually one of the best distances over six bends in the country. And yeah, the first tee, the Candyman, I was I wasn't sure if he's going to stay the six thirty. If I'm being honest, obviously the the over four bends, the dog was top top quality, top top class. Has mixed it with the very best, all competitions. Uh, as one cat ones has posted flashy times everywhere. Unfortunately, though, over the last six to eight months, just hasn't been able to stay properly fit. Uh, we're hoping now, though, I know that um, Darren and Carol are really hoping now that we can keep this dog fit and a mat the owner. And yeah, I think he's going to come on for that run. He, he didn't he turned in a fairly handy pitch, but he turned beyond Droopy Soldier, who obviously is a really strong dog. And then Muxton Lottie, who has won over further, actually, Muxton Lottie. And Candyman Man ran past Lottie with quite ease. And I just think that he's going to come on for that run an awful lot. Um, give a shout out to Olga and Trap 4 as well who reached the final of the Golden Jacket, Pat Curtin, really, really top dog. But I just think this is a bit dropping class for Candyman. I just think that as long as he comes away, handy looks after himself for around the first two bends, I think class will prevail and I'll be expecting him to drop under that 38-second barrier. So, yeah, Candyman for me. Then the big question then is, will he stay the 6-8-4? But, yeah, I think Candyman, if you can get 2-1, to one, I think, on Saturday early doors, I think you're looking to take that prize because I think he's a dropping class for the dog, who is top quality on his day. I love Candyman. Uh, I'd back him over a cliff, I think. Well, I actually have backed him over a cliff uh, many times, so hopefully he can do the business on Saturday. In the second heat, we've got Trap 1, Slippy Mick, 2, Speechless, 3, Westwell Diego, 4, Droopy's Good Time, 5, Archtub Jim Woods, and 6, Crystal Alice. And again, on the show on Saturday, Speechless was Fallen out the back of the TV, didn't go a yard in the early strides and just sighed through the field. Trap two, speechless, would be for me. I think he showed that he relished the step up to 6.30 last time and I'm just hoping he can build on it from there. I think speechless, if speechless can qualify from this heat, I think he's a ma- he's a massive player then going forward over the 6.84 because like you say, last on Saturday, extremely impressive Um Considering it was the first race, I think the dogs had over this April 21. It's only going to get better. And yeah, it was extremely eye catching. I'm just going to favour, though, Crystal Alice in Trap 6, who's got an unbelievable draw on the outside here. Uh, every chance to lead up the outside and swoop round. But if you look at her, uh, her four bend form, I mean, she's been catching Bambi's Magic, only be getting beat five lengths to Hose Paddington, getting beat three lengths by Cordovani Shadio over the four bend. So. Yeah, I think she's got winning form over here as well. 38-37 for me would be good enough to win this off the front. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Crystal Alice here. And I think you might get a nice bit of value early doors. Um, there might be a little bit of money going around for Drupy's Good Time as well, who I think probably been a bit disappointed, if I'm being honest. If you were connections of Drupy's Good Time over the six bends, I think if you looked at four bend form, you think it's been craving out for this distance, but it hasn't quite put it together yet. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go for Crystal Alice, uh, who I think, who I actually make quite a good bet, actually. And I think, Crystal Alice will be speechless and then he'll think will be a massive player then going forward to the final. Crystal Alice and speechless. We've got our eye on in the second heat and the third heat of the labrooks.com dual distance stayers sees one Kunov Crow, two Derby's Delight, three low pressure, four Crystal Pinkies, five Muxton Lottie and six Titan Jim. Derby's Delight did an impressive time over this trip and ultimate start 37.88. This is going to be tougher, but he's in cracking form at the moment, Derby's Delight. And, you know, the Hellebron's kennel are going great guns at the moment, Ryan. Yeah, um, the Hubby's the like is probably top, top of the, the list of dogs that I never seem to get right. Uh, <laughs> if I bet Darby's the like at a big price, um, he looks like he's going to win. And then 
finishes short head second. If I go against him, he'll find a way to lead and beat me. Davies a light for me. He's as fast as Davies like wants to be. Uh, I think he's got his own own ideas about the game. If he can get off the front early, then the dog is definitely up there. One of the best in the country over six bends. Uh, but when he doesn't quite lead early, then yeah, it can get interesting. But I just think it's got a fairly. I think he's got a fairly good makeup here. Uh, I think he'll lead uh, trap one kind of crow. I think he'll definitely low pressure in three, who actually uh, I think will come second in the race. So, yeah, and then obviously Titan Jim on the outside as well. So, yeah, I think it's a really good heat for Derby's Delight. I think you'd be looking even many odds on, so probably wouldn't be for me uh, at that price. But, yeah, Derby's Delight looks a good thing here for me to be low pressure in trap three. Derby's Delight to be low pressure in trap three for the third heat of the Labrooks.com dual distance stayers. That is it for the betting side of things. Danny and Ryan, obviously in horse racing, which I've followed for a long time, people wouldn't even consider talking about a race without seeing the prices. Now, with Greyhound racing, that doesn't happen because bookies don't price up heats, you know, well in advance. So anyone that wants to discuss racing on a Wednesday or Thursday before Saturday, for example, what doesn't have the prices available, you know, even in the racing post, they tip up stuff the night before and they haven't seen any prices for the races because the bookies haven't priced it up. What you know? Why is that? And do you think that if book is priced up, op- I'm talking about open races here, obviously not graded. You know, if book is priced up open races a few days in advance, and and there's no reason why they shouldn't. You know, the forms there. You know, maybe puppy races would be trickier. Do you think it would help? You know, push the sport and allow people to talk about the races and prices. You know, days in advance and really build it up because it seems bizarre to me. You know, coming from more of a horse racing background, that that people even discuss betting on on greyhounds without seeing any odds it's either a laziness to do it and an unwillingness to put early prices out and just think ground racing a bit of an afterthought let's just get out on, on the day of the competition or they're scared of getting hit early doors and they're scared of making a mistake with the price uh and getting filled in really not that you can get filled in properly these days anyway but yeah. i think it's one of the two um I'd probably edge towards probably they just see what Labrooks and Coral price up and then use that as a bit of a marker really for what they want to do. It's extremely disappointing. Um, the the quicker you get your prices out, it can only generate more interest, more turnover because obviously mm. people are speaking, owners, connections, myself, us three, we've all got a big interest in the sport. I'm looking at these races. I'm already trying to guess what prices they are. And if I made a dog say two to one and I see a, a firm on a Wednesday price up three to one, I'm getting my money on early. For example, um, and that's not to say that I want to have another bet close to the close to the time. So it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just frustrating thing, really. I'm, I think they're probably scared to get hit early doors with the, putting out the wrong price. So at the moment, like you say, you interviewed James last week. They tend just to go off what he does, half a point or four. <laughs> or yeah. It's laziness and not having the expertise, I, I guess, isn't it? But it does definitely impact the ability to talk about and preview races in advance of them happening, doesn't it, Danny? Yeah, what I would say, I don't think it's laziness. I think it's dictated from above, having spoken to certain people that I know um, in the trading world, and they want to have an opinion, but it doesn't necessarily fit with certain companies. I'm not just talking about the one I used to work for. I have spoken to a couple of other people as well. And the people that do trade in you know, Greyhound Racing, they want to have an opinion and they want to price them up. But I think it is a case of, the companies are a little bit wary of going in too early and yeah, getting filled in, as Ryan said. So it's a tricky one because I'd love to see the prices, um, mm. but it isn't an unwillingness and it's not a laziness in my 
experience, um, I have to say. Certainly speaking to James, I've spoken to a couple of guys at, at William Hill and other um, bookmakers as well. And they want to. They're just, they've got their hands tied. Yeah, interesting. I know it's not going to be, you know, something that a lot of people do and the majority of the money is going to be on the day, don't get me wrong, but it certainly helps build a narrative up to the races. And when you look at horse race, you know, anti-post stuff for the for the weekend coming up comes out on Monday, Tuesday, and people just start talking about it. You know, there's as we know, there's loads of podcasts and stuff in racing that discuss betting and, and events coming up. But with ground racing, it's just difficult because you, you get the anti-post markets that come up maybe a day or two before the competition starts. And when it comes to heats um, and individual races, you, you just don't see it. And I just, you know, for open racing, the forms in the book, you know, people and the dogs mm. trial. So I, I don't understand why they can't put, put markets up and allow people to discuss them. And at the end of the day, you're going to get limited to, you're not going to be able to get a grand on a, on a dog on a, you know, on a Tuesday before the heat, are you? Let's face it. But it, but it would be good to have them and, and to be able to discuss them. Agreed. And maybe the powers that be can listen to the gone to the dogs podcast and start, <laughs> start making waves and start putting out anti-post prizes a little bit earlier. We're trying, aren't we, Joe? We're trying. We're trying. Just a thought on the on the betting angle anyway that, that I was considering earlier, so we'll see. Right, well, I think that wraps it up for the betting side of things for this week. Ryan, hopefully you've picked a few more winners and, you know, you're hanging on by a thread and you'll be there next time around. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll give you a 66 to 1 anti-pose tip. So, yeah, I think <laughs> as long as it finished first three, I'll give me a bit of credit for the next time you, you, you ask me to come on. Fingers crossed. Well, thanks very much, Ryan, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Gone to the Dogs, released every other Friday. For more info or to reach out on Twitter, follow at Totally Betting and at Danny V. Jackson. Podcast produced and edited by Joe Andrews and Danny Jackson. Voiceover by Katie Harvey.